to a refugee at the age of two, Ocean Vuong and his mom found themselves fleeing Saigon and Vietnam, traveling across the globe, and then dropped into a world that was simultaneously a source of renewal and safety, while also delivering a daily dose of profound othering and challenge. The English language came slowly to Ocean, struggling to read at the age of 11, but over time, his deep curiosity and sense of observation and openness led to a love of language that grabbed hold and just never let go. In 2016, he released a critically acclaimed poetry collection, Night Sky, that dazzled the literary world. His gorgeously written and deeply stirring first novel, On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, which became an instant New York Times bestseller. It draws on his experience growing up in Hartford, Connecticut, with a mom who shared a, a complex love in a community he seemed perpetually estranged from. A recipient of the 2019 MacArthur Genius Grant, Ocean is also the winner of the Whiting Award and the T.S. Eliot Prize. His writing has been featured in The Atlantic, Harper's Magazine, The Nation, New Republic, New Yorker, New York Times, and so many others. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. We're in this really interesting moment in time, I think, you know, um, and I would imagine, you know, the past handful of years have, have been strange and transformative in a lot of ways for you. Um, but let's take a little bit of a step back in time because a lot of the, you know, the seeds of your story really don't just start in Hartford, Connecticut in the U.S. It, it really starts in Vietnam in, I guess, the late 80s, early 90s when the family fled 
as so many did, and found themselves refugees, effectively, in Connecticut, you coming up, really just knowing your mom largely, and her touching down in a place that probably when she was a child, the notion of her trying to find a life, you know, in Hartford, Connecticut, in the United States, was the most bizarre and foreign thing that she could ever have imagined. Yeah, yeah, it was disorienting, you know. I think war displaces, and I think PTSD is a displacement. You know, it, it's, it's basically the experience of trauma taking over the present. And so I always say that to remember is a very costly thing for, for anyone, uh, whether it's a, a national memory or a personal one, because you, you literally risk the present. You forsake the present in order to go back. And so the cost of remembering is your very life. And so I, the women who raised me who suffer from PTSD, they had no choice. Their memory often hijacked their present. And so it was a flickering. You know, living with them and being nurtured by them was, uh, you know, this, this, this almost hyper flickering time capsule. It, it, it was like traveling through time through TV channels. And, you know, so there's that internal disorientation, but also Hartford, America was so different. And it's not only America, but cities. You know, my family came from rice farmers. And if it wasn't for the war, we would still be rice farmers. We've been farming that land for centuries. And so it was a lot to learn, but it was also very freeing because they did not have any framework to pressure me to be a careerist in any way, to be a doctor or a business person or, you know, the stereotypical Asian American plight of uh, young people. They were just like, it was all a blank slate. It's like, do whatever you can, you know, work at McDonald's. It's a job. And so I, I had, on one hand, the disorientation created this absolute freedom to explore whatever I wanted. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's so fascinating because, you know, I think, People very often, they make different choices and there are different motivations for leaving one country and making a life in another country. You know, like, and, and sometimes it's a blend of running from and running to, you know, wanting something and at the same time wanting to leave something. And in the case of, you know, of, of your family and so many others, you know, at least the, in, in the immediate choice, it was a running from, it was a effectively we need to stay alive. Yeah. And then, you know, so I, th I think very often in circumstances like that, it's less about sort of this intentional choice of how do we pick among the different places where it would you know, give us the best opportunity? It was just like, no, how do we stay alive right now? And then you land in, in another place and then all the other things start to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's why I insist on the word refugee um, mm -hmm. and not even former refugee, right? Because I think our understanding of the word refugee is colored by the newsreel where you know a woman or a parent running and dragging their children in the midst of this you know highly chaotic instant right it's always about the instant and the scream of the refugee captured in the photograph is almost like edward munch's scream it's like this frozen moment but in fact it's prolonged right one is a refugee forever and I think that is really vital in understanding history that's often outside of that frame of that photograph. Because 
would then have to ask, well, why? What is the epicenter of the refugee? And I always insist that my American citizenship did not begin when I arrived in Hartford, Connecticut, the Laurel New England world of Wallace Stevens and Mark Twain. But it began with American foreign policy when the first bombs fell in Vietnam, a country no larger than California. My American citizenship began there. Yeah, I, I mean, my curiosity with that well, it runs many levels, but on the surface of it is, is there a moment, do you wonder, where, um, or is there a generation where the transition becomes made from refugee to resident, you know, or do you feel like it is a perpetual, it's almost like it's in the DNA and that is just the way it endures? Well, it's important to expand refugee too, right? I think my my quick answer would be, there's no end to it. And there shouldn't be, right? Because we often ask of an American identity, well, when are you fully American? It is when, when do you move beyond the epicenter? And I think moving beyond epicenter is how we get into the trouble that we get into in this country. You know, yeah. we, we want to forget that this, this nation is founded on genocide and literally enslaving people for labor, for free labor, right? And so I think for me, I'm more interested in well, how else are we refugees, even beyond the crisis? I turn to the Jewish diaspora and the Holocaust. You know, so many studies and researchers coming from that, you know, are, they were the, the researchers that came out of the Holocaust, but the first to really have the foundation epigenetic trauma in talking about when are we okay? And, and is it okay to not be okay, even if the epicenter is no longer within reach? no longer within felt memory. You know, we, we understand this through the conversation of reparations in Black communities, right? So that we, we see that these epicenters, some, in some sense, never lose their grip on us, regardless of who we are. It just takes over like vines of the country. And so I'm in more interested in redefining and expanding what a refugee is so that we don't have this sort of, okay, now that we're done with it, who are we? I think who we are depends on what we've reckoned with, with our history. Mm, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Um, you know, it's interesting also because when, you know, you now in, I believe your your 30s, have a certain lens on this, whereas when you're coming up as a kid, you know, very often that you wake up in the morning, you go out, you know, you're in your, your single digits, your teens, and, and all you want to do is be okay and to a certain extent belong. I remember you sharing, you used the phrase, I believe, we erased ourselves to go to school when you were talking about high school, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the, the opposite experience in your youth. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the pressure to conform and to find identity uh, becomes an obsession with self-worth. You know, and I think, in a sense, we all have this. We all, the tribulations of childhood is so fraught because we don't really have all the tools. We have facts. The, the, the textbook gives us facts in which often we don't know what to do with. But I wish education, you know, primary school education taught us how to question and allowed us how to be more than just one or two things. But growing up in New England, you know, on the other hand, allowed me to really understand America. New England is a very crowded place. Everything's close together. 
you drive 20 minutes and you literally slice through everything about America, social, political, race, gender, economics, class differences. And so I got what is in retrospect, a crash course in what America is. And I'm ultimately really grateful for that education, even though it might not have been intended for me in that way. Yeah, I mean, especially in Hartford, Connecticut, where you you literally, you know, you can go a couple of blocks in any direction or, you know, five minutes in any direction if you're in a car and go from some of the the wealthiest neighborhoods um, to, you know, neighborhoods that really are steeped in poverty side by side, which, which, like you said, in almost any major city or any metropolitan or or large enough town, you're going to find that. But especially, yeah, in the Northeast, having grown up in the Northeast as well, I, I have seen and experienced that as well. You know, it, seeing your mom also and being raised effectively um, by a single mom who never read, never spoke English. You know, it's interesting. I've seen the experience of kids raised in that situation where sometimes they become the nurturers, the ones who rally, the protectors. And then sometimes it's the exact opposite sentiment. It's almost like a complete dissociation with that because it is the source of the thing that makes you feel different and and in that feel othered. I'm wondering how you danced with that. Yeah, you grow up um, very quickly, and I I can I don't know how it would be different. You know, you grow up and you think, well, I wish I had a parent that could take me to basketball games. You know, instead I didn't even know when the signups were right because my mother never had an email address, you know, um, and, but so you end up becoming protectors of them because you have the, the access of the English language, right? The English language makes people legible and they weren't legible because they couldn't speak. And they were always in the background of the country, whether it's a store on the street in the DMV, and I would have to, to step up and speak for them. And it's a fraught thing because you don't want to speak for anybody. You know, you don't want to speak for these adults who brought you into the world. That's not a decision any child or any person really wants to do. You realize that you have to in order for them to be valued. And it's, in a way, I'm still doing this in a sense, right? Only on a larger scale. Our culture is obsessed with using media and narrative to increase value on a certain group of people when those groups of people should already be valued from the get-go, right? We're often asked to, to narrate, often suffering, in order for value to be placed on a, on a group of people. And I'm trying to participate in a way that resists that. Mm. I'm curious what's underneath that. I wonder if there are these multiple levels of... Uh... You know, on the level of society, there are reasons, but also on the level of self-preservation and, and, and the way that you want to exert your energy moving through the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, you see it, for example, in the 19th century, the humanist movement, where, you know, France and, and England was colonizing the global South. And you see um, this movement with liberal progressive artists, you know, Flaubert going to Egypt and returning and saying, we shouldn't colonize and conquer these people because they have art, right? And so, meanwhile, he should have said we shouldn't conquer them because they're people. Right. And but so this because they have heartbeats, not art. 
Yeah, yeah. So this humanist, uh, this this once very progressive humanist movement was an attempt to kind of validate life through culture and often consumable culture. And so then we pillaged all of the art and then put it in, you know, European museums. Uh, And I think this is still happening, sadly, over 100 years later. There's this demand uh, amongst the liberal, progressive white milieu of asking artists of color to sort of humanize themselves in order for a predominantly white audience to have empathy. And it's a double bind because then you're kind of limited to constantly narrating your worth when you should be worthy from the get-go. And it's a, it's a difficult place to work in, and I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. I go back to James Baldwin, where he says, you know, when he considers whiteness in America, he says, I don't know white people personally, but I know them historically. And in that sense, you know, there's such a wealth. History is much longer than the brief few years that we get to share on earth as, as living people. And, and I think in that sense, I, when I consider my role as an artist in America, I have to kind of consider how whiteness has seen itself as purveyors of art, you know, way beyond this country, all the way back to Europe, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's the, um, the role of the arbiter of what has value. And I think it, you know, it becomes even more fraught when you have the overlay of, can I sustain myself by doing this thing? I feel compelled for no other reason than the way it makes me feel and the thing, I, it's the thing I can't not do. But the notion of then being able to not only have it accepted and have it be a valid expression of who you are, but go beyond that and in some way interact with other people, with enough other people in a way where they see enough, quote, value in it themselves that they're willing to support your work. Yeah. Just, you know, it, it brings this whole additional layer to it, which I know for, for every artist, whether it's painting, art, music, has been this perpetually fraught um, dynamic. It's a prayer in the dark, you know, and you, you, you don't know if anyone's listening. And, and I do think that at its core, at its most vital, lonely, heart-wrenching endeavor, writing, staying up late, staring out the dark window and asking of the page to articulate something of value. It's like prayer. It's the same thing as when we are in crises. Um, we, we kneel down at the bed and, and ask of whoever that we believe is in power to help us. Uh, but I think the beauty of this is that writing is ultimately an optimistic act. If I didn't have hope, if I didn't feel positively indebted to our species constant improvement, I wouldn't sit down to write in the same way someone wouldn't pray without hope. They pray because they want to live and they want to live better. And in the same way, I write because I think their improvement is is just ahead of me, even if it means just the improvement of a sentence, which as any writer would tell you, you yourself would know, that's a win for a day if you can write a good sentence. Uh, I, there are times where I sit down and I read other sentences and I think to myself, in five years, I may be able to write a sentence that may be remotely worthy of that one sentence. And, and oddly, like you just shared, I'm okay with that because to me, there's an aspirational element to it and there's a sense of possibility that 
that there will be growth, that there will be progress, and, and a certain amount of even beyond hope faith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you, you couldn't be pessimistic as an artist. It, it's just so, and I don't even think most people at, at their core are pessimistic. I've been reading Thomas Merton recently, mm. or I read him all the time, but I go back and you know, his engagement with Buddhism is so thorough and earnest and aspirational, right? And I think the way his mind works, the way he sees the world as a means of illumination uh, is so, so inspiring to me. You know, if you look at our daily life, everything is infused with goodness, so much more than we actually think. I mean, just look at a chair. The chair is so well considered of the human form. It, you know, the person making the chair, even if they're having a horrible day, they still succeeded in infusing that chair with the goodness of the intention of making a serviceable thing for people. They made sure it's the sturdiest, it does this, it rotates, you know. And you can see this with almost everything you look at. And I think the goodness and the intention of, of our species really outweigh the horrors, even though the horrors predominate what we see on the news because they're so they're controlled by so few, but they affect so many, and and that's the big dynamic that we, I think, should focus on at the end of the day. Whether it's in novels or media or podcasting, is power. It all comes down to power. Yeah, it's interesting that you reference sort of like a, a Buddhist sensibility in Merton's writings, which are, are I, I I see that very same thing, which is um. And I know Buddhist studies or Buddhist ideas, ideals, texts is something that you were drawn to fairly early as well. I think in, in high school is when it, it started to become something that really sort of infused your thinking. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll be a, I would be a Buddhist if I was in, you know, Kathmandu or, but I think for something about growing up in New England pushed me there even further because I just saw so much wealth and privilege. I saw what we now understand as white male privilege. I saw it so close, right? I, they, were, they were my peers, and I saw them at their most vulnerable, which is their coming to manhood. And I still, despite of all the structural privilege, I still saw that joy and happiness was still so rare, even amongst them. And I think Buddhism begins right there, right? Suffering is the law of the land. And the question then is, how do we transform it into something useful? And I just went into the library and I just thought, I got to find a way out of here. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't about moving geographically. It was about finding a way out of the soul of America that was so corrupt that it was turning boys into, you know, the most reductive, holograms of who they could be and they were suffering from it um, and i got to see it so up close um, and that was i think that the great privilege of examining white male privilege was that underneath all of the facade of power and the structural gifts that this country offers it happiness was still so rare and fraught and at times inconceivable and so it did not have the same power that it does on paper that I saw in life. And so I didn't want it. I didn't see that, that was, if that was the pinnacle of this country, then we're in trouble. 
it's not something, it's not a destination that I wanted to go to. So I had to find something else. Yeah, I mean, the realizing that at such an early age, and not that the the depth of your awakenings, I would imagine, I won't make assumptions, but um, the lens that you just shared, I would imagine is something that has unfolded over a period of years. You know, you start into the world of Buddhist ideas and really a lot of different types of Eastern thought. And I think it plants seeds that very often take years to blossom into saplings and then eventually you know, like larger plants of thought that make uh, you know coherent blossoms and flowers. Um, but the, you know, w- when you're starting to, to dabble in these ideas and starting to bring them into your life and, and becoming aware of the world around you and, and having different tools really to understand and process them, you know, at the same time is it's interesting to me that as you move out of being a kid and decide, okay, so I'm, you know, I'm, what is my next place? Um, that there was something inside of you that even for a heartbeat said, well, there's, there's this voice that says, follow a more traditional path, you know, like go to business school, do the thing that's going to be sustainable and secure and safe and supportive. And, 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 you know, the, the, the narrative for you is that was this relatively short experiment and, you know, impulse and intuition shortly took over. But I'm wondering about that short moment, the, those four or five weeks where you decide, like, you know, I'm going to give this a go. Yeah, I went to business school um, for, you know, a month. And like any immigrant first generation kid to go to college, I thought, where do I make money so that my mother and my family can thrive so that I could be an artist. I always wanted to to be an artist. I didn't know how. And I just thought I owe it to them to take care of them first. And I tried. I couldn't do it. You know, I was in these classes and my peers would come in with suits and they would go off to internships at Morgan Chase and, you know, J.P. Morgan and Chase Bank and all that. And I just thought, I, I don't know how I can do this. You know, I, I'm learning to just lie. I was an international marketing student and it was basically lying for companies. That was my future. And I thought if I'm going to lie, I might as well lie in my own work, lie as an artist, which is the greatest pleasure. And it was ultimately an act of failure. I failed the, the, the American dream, quote unquote. And so I thought, me studying literature was just a way of salvaging the failure and at least coming home and giving my mother a degree uh, in which she couldn't read. I could have told her it was chemical science, I could bioengineering, and it wouldn't matter. Um, so I got a degree in literature at Brooklyn College. And that was kind of me surrendering. That was me saying, okay, I guess I'm going to be a, a bum. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm going to work at Starbucks and go back to Panera and read books at the library. And, and it was like, you know, a kind of a resignation. But because there was no other you know, prospects, I threw myself at literature. I just said, this, if this is it, let's go 110%. And then one thing led to another, and, and here I am. So it's, it's absolutely disorienting. You know, no one really wants writers. We're not a country that, that says, go and be a writer. And so I can't really complain that I chose this path and, and how hard it is. It's, it's hard, but it's not the hardest. But I chose it. I, I, I wanted to be. And I think ultimately, again, 
is an act of, of optimism. It's an aspirational act, an act of prayer that I hope I can manifest something. Taking your intention into your own hands and manifesting a book uh, out of that, you, you naturally gain a lot of wisdom just with that, just because you cared about something so small. You know, a book is about 60,000, 80,000 words. And to care about 80,000 tiny things, not to mention the commas and punctuation involved, you, it changes you, right? If you can come out at the end of that endeavor, there's very few things on this earth that trains the mind to care about so many minuscule things, but with absolute intention and consideration that it naturally changes you. It's an act of meditation in itself. Mm, yeah, uh, that completely resonates with me, um, having been through the process a number of times myself as well. It, it brings everything up. And I almost wonder if, it, if that process doesn't change you, then why are you even saying yes to it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's an act of utmost humbling, you know, because to be an apprentice of the sentence, which I believe every writer should be, is to be an apprentice of failure. So, you know, by the time any writer publishes anything, they've probably failed on a daily, you know, level more than most folks. And, and so I think being okay with failure brings you closer to the human condition. It, it's very antisocial in the sense because we, we like to celebrate triumphs. We don't like to talk about depression, and insecurities and loneliness and, you know, our failures at the dinner table. Not at the dinner table. Not now, we always say. We stave off the dark until it only permits one person, us. And then we start to toil away. And I think the pandemic has really amplified American loneliness, especially around men, particularly men in their 30s. There's an epidemic now of mental health and suicide rates among men in their 30s because we've, we've been equipped our men to reach out well enough. You know, there's all this homophobia around men asking each other out for drinks. Like, oh, what are you, what are you trying to do, you know? And then they just toil away and, and we're seeing the ramifications of it. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm veering off here, but I think the act of, of, of writing anything is giving more versions of yourself to one thing. And it really teaches you, at least teaches me, how to live. That if I could give more versions of myself to a text, then I should also try or aspire to give more versions of myself to my loved ones and my community, etc. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. There is a, a poem from, from Night Sky, which I guess was 2016, right? Entitled Someday I'll Love Ocean Vuong, where you write, Ocean, ocean, get up. The most beautiful part of your body is where it's headed. And remember, loneliness is still time spent with the world, which I think really speaks to what you were just sharing. Yes, yes. Because, you know, I think the world is infused, again, with a, a certain intelligence. Everything we see, the plants, the trees, I'm sound, I don't mean to sound new agey, but I think you know, the more I grow older, the more I quote unquote accomplish and the more I fail, the more I'm confident in this sort of strange binary. Binaries are not very cool nowadays, you know, they're not trendy. But the more I live, the more I see that, you know what? Star Wars had it right. (laughs) (laughs) It is good and evil, right? And I think, but the, the, the world is not complex, I don't think. This might be very controversial. I don't know. But I think human beings are complex. The world is not complex. If we look at it, it manifests either in goodness or in, or in 
the, you know, the Death Star. There's just two, it's kind of very, it's in a way, it's very black and white, but it's us, right? And I think this is something that's very important because we have to take more agency in our actions, that the filter of the human filters a manifestation that is useful and good and one that is harmful. Words are like that. We saw this in the Trump administration, how words can harm. We still see the ramification with this, you know, China virus and the Asian hate crimes spreading across, right? And so the manifestation, I think, are often clear, but the ambivalence, the the contradictions and the paradoxes is within us. And the more agency we take, the more responsibility we take in that, the, the more goodness we can filter through the vessel of the person. Um, and, and the older I get, I mean, years ago, I would say this is, you know, the world is complex, everything is open and anything is possible. But the more I look at it, the more I see that when it lands in the earth, when it lands in the world, when it manifests, it is very clear which side it's on. And it looks very, very much like, you know, Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm. It's an interesting concept, right, to make this separation. You know, the, the, the world itself is, is fairly straightforward, but it's, it is what we bring to it um, through our internal processing and lenses um, and filtering that makes it so much more complex. Yeah, yeah. And it, it kind of puts into question what is a good person and what's a bad huh. person. It throws it all out the window because there are only acts, right? That's why, you know, sometimes you, you, you see on the trial the serial killer and you see, they interview the parent. They say, he was so perfect. He was my baby, you know? And it's like these complexities are inside us and the acts are clear. The acts land on either side but the people are complex. And the more we invest in the thinking of our complexity, the more we can nurture goodness. And maybe this is too naive. Maybe in, in another 10 years, I would laugh at myself. But right now, you know, this is what I feel. Mm, no, that actually resonates deeply. Um, I remember uh, reviewing some researches from the world of social science, positive psychology, and um, they were speaking to phenomenon where when we see somebody else do something we perceive as a, quote, bad act, we view that as an identity level action. Well, they are, we label that person, oh, oh, that's a bad person. When we do something that would be on a similar level, a, quote, bad act, well, it was just a bad decision. We're good people who made a bad choice or took a bad, you know, like uh, uh, action in the world. So there is this human phenomenon that tends to associate the bad acts of others on an identity level basis. Yet the very same behavior from us is just an aberration, but we are fundamentally on an identity level. We see ourselves as good. It's a, it's a strange quirk of human nature. What you're describing, Jonathan, right there is storytelling. Right? Because you said there's, there's yeah. two objective observations. One has a different narrative than the other. One is that's an evil person. The other one is, oh, I'm a good person who made a mistake or was forced to make a bad decision. And that is storytelling. And this is why storytelling is so important. It's not just novels. Entire nations are built on the myths of storytelling. 
And, and this is why I'm really, I'm so excited to be a writer. Because at the end of the day, our entire species depends on how we transform observation, transform phenomena, and infuse it and transform it using words to land one way or another. And, and everything begins with it. You know, you can have all the technology in the world, all the medicine, all the weaponry, the nuclear, you know, weapons. It could be the most advanced arsenal, but you can never deploy it without a story. And it's no accident that the majority of the presidents and the people who lead this country and the people who lead CEO positions in businesses come from a liberal arts background, from a law background. They're ultimately storytellers. Hmm. It takes the story to harness the resources, either for good or for destruction, but it begins with the story, right? We think of the Odyssey, the story of, of the woman stolen, right? And we must launch a thousand ships to reclaim her. The mythos of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq that never came through, right? The mythos that, you know, Washington, you know, was this noble man with wooden teeth who saved this country, you know, but ignoring his slaves, right? And so myth is what we make and also what we take out. And it transforms how we see the world. And we are a species that has this tool. And, and that's such a valuable thing, the more we pay attention to it. But I think our education hides that. We are told that we need to learn a standardized English in order to write a good email and get a job. And pretty much that's it, right? Learn the rules and carry on. But what we should be telling our children is that this is your inheritance. We're leaving you this wealth that can change the future. It's called language. Look at it as a plastic, malleable world. How you determine what you want to be, where you want to live in this world depends on what you say to each other. Imagine if we, if we taught them that rather than just, you know, here's a comma splice, you know, don't start your sentence with because, you know. <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know, and, and you don't, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it, it's very clear, at least with my education, that language was just this thing that I had to catch up with. And if I didn't, then I was shamefully subpar in it. But it was not something that I possessed. And I think if we taught students that they truly possess this and that their value of life, their quality of life will determine, will be determined by how they use this material, it would be so, so incredible. Mm, I so agree with that on every level. And I feel like it is language especially the art of story is sort of like the bastard child of education <laughs> in, in in no small extent you know these days we become so obsessed with the the quantifiable you know with numbers and and code and systems and process and these things matter you know the scientific process matters you know evidence based things matter and yet at the same time, if all of those things exist and yet we lose the capacity to tell and understand and share and relate to one another through story, how much does all the rest really matter? And yet it's the thing that none of us were really taught effectively unless you went out and deliberately sought to learn that, you know, it's, it's not sort of a part of the core curriculum 
of the way that we're taught, you know, the, the fundamental skill set, not just the fundamental skill set, but the fundamental lens of looking to see clearly so you can understand what the source fuel for the stories are. It, yep, exactly. It's the classic Greek dichotomy between pathos and logos. And it's not even that logos is better or where we should lie in that pathos is manipulative. It's just, it is what it is. But it so happens that pathos often wins, right? Every dictatorship, every, you know, uh, uh, movement, uh, either, you know, for liberating our people or to condemn and enslave our people as a species begins and ends with pathos. It's harnessing an emotional response in order to transform the, the phenomenal reality. And I think, you know, knowing that, it's not so much a good or bad thing, but in fact, it might be even be a good thing in that we are a species that respond with compassion. And it's just often propaganda tools manipulate our compassions to get us to ultimately destroy each other. And so, but at the end of the day, we seek uh, a certain goodness. We just don't know how to translate that. Um, and, and so I, I think at the core, there is something very promising here but we're just not exactly there yet. Mm, so agree. The fact of a moment is always limited by the story of it's happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, it, it, and yet we focus so much on articulating the fact without actually articulating the story that makes it real for so many people. The story allows us to zoom in. And I think for whatever reason, we as a species respond very viscerally very potently when we zoom in. And maybe it's because we, we come out of tribal backgrounds where, you know, the person who's, who's most hurt is the center. And we collectively tend to that person when they're ill and they're hurt. And then so their story suddenly becomes the story of the tribe for that era, for that community, for that moment, and until they are healed, right? So we're a problem-solving species built on empathy. And that gives me a lot of hope. I think it's been manipulated. I think that knowledge uh, in the hands of corporations and military industrial complexes has really harmed us. But to know that that is who we are, in a sense, uh, gives me a lot of hope. You know, there's this fact, and I don't know if it's absolutely true. I know it's debated, but I keep thinking about this fact about, you know, the, the trigger rate of American soldiers in World War II. It was determined. Um, that it was about 25%, 20 to 25%. Uh, and, and so only one qu a quarter of American soldiers fired their guns. And that's, you know, if, if anything, that was, it proves that we are not built for war. We were not meant to aim a machine of death at another person. And the American military kind of understood this. And so when the Vietnam War came, the firing rate went up to 90%. Wow. So the question is, how? And the answer is storytelling. So for the first time, the military training, from basic training forward with draftees, was infused with dehumanizing words and elements, right? We, now we start to hear words like gook, right? You know, chink, charlie. And then the American foreign policy of measuring success at one point, right? McNamara 
says we will now measure the success of this war through the actual bodies on the ground, the actual corpses, regardless of whether they're enemy combatants or not. And so basically, to the military understood that to have a better machine of death, you must use storytelling, words, to transform a human being into something lesser than that. So at the end of the day, the soldiers did not feel that they were killing people, but they were hunting something less than, which made the triggers much more easier to pull in the same way it's much more easier to hunt a deer than to shoot a person. Mm. And that was through the power of language. And so when you think about language as something corralled or relegated to the dusty halls of the liberal arts college, you know, composed of the stem, you're gravely mistaken because it is actually an incredible technology, perhaps the most advanced technology we have. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm just, every part of me is nodding in agreement with you. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
You know, it's fascinating also in in the context of your novel on Earth were briefly gorgeous. You know, when a lot of the stories that that you've been talking about here, and a lot of the frames that we talk about when we're sharing stories, is you know there there is an a quote us, and then there's a them. There is a victim, and there's a villain, or an entire class or category or culture that is one or the other. And the stories are, you know, I've I've heard I've heard it said in the you know in the, the film writing world, you know, that stories are about conflict resolution. You know, there's got to be conflict. There's got to be the good. There's got to be the bad. There's, there has to be, you know, the victim and the villain. And the story lies in the conflict and the resolution or or the non-resolution. And I'm fascinated because in in your novel, which, which is effectively written as a letter, um, the character is writing to the mother, but effectively it's also, it's it's there's so much of your life in here writing to your mom, knowing that in fact, you know, the mother will never be able to read it. That within this whole beautiful story as it's unfolding, that it is, there are no clear victims or villains. It's less about conflict. It's less about like who wins, who loses, who's right, who's wrong. And it's more about what you were talking about before. It's like, how can I tell this in a, in a way that creates the space for all, that focuses in? Yeah. Um, that really zooms all in and holds it all without necessarily creating that tension, that conflict, and still have a powerful story, which is astonishingly difficult to do, but so beautifully done in this work. Thank you for saying that. I, I, I think it's just a different way of viewing what a story should do. And, you know, the, the Frey Tags inverted arc example of, you know, climax, anticlimax, resolution is a traditional one. It comes from the Greeks and the Romans, and that's the pillars of Western thinking is high drama and resolution. And we see that a lot. And it's not nothing wrong with it. I, I just, for me, I just felt or I, I believed that life is already conflicted, that history is a conflicted background it's conflicted soil so that whatever grows out of that soil comes out of a very fraught, dangerous, complicated, and ultimately a climatic foundation. So to then take characters out of that and throw them into an orchestrated, tightly wound plot was to kind of, in a way, ignore how interesting their histories are. And so I, I always felt that people are already conflicted in life and a story can be interesting just by allowing people to be n- near each other. Proximity creates friction, just like chemicals. Hydrogen, oxygen, put it together, water. Transformation happens when potent energies stand beside each other. So in a way, I just kind of created space for these characters to live in. I put them in, you know, I insist that it is fiction because every scene in the book came out of my head. You know, it's, it's not mimetic of my life. The context is mimetic of my life. I'm interested in the autobiographical project because it's an American project from Salinger to Sylvia Plath to Moby Dick to Walt Whitman. The American self amplified in literature is kind of the legacy of, of American you know, writing. And I wanted to participate in that. It also raises the stakes. You know, I had to render 
these people well because they were built from the foundation of the people I know. So I owe it to them to, to be ethical in how I portrayed them. And I like that challenge. It, it made their histories more thorough. And, and you're right in that I don't, I never wanted a villain or a victor in this book, but simply people. And you can see it more as a portrait gallery rather than, mm-hmm. you know, a carnival ride that often plot-driven tracks are, are pushed on. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and one of the things that fascinates me about it is when you take a book like this and, you know, the publishing industry, which is notoriously in love with the formula, you know, they want to know how is this like something that has succeeded before, before they say yes. You know, granted, you show up with a, with, you know, with a tremendous surge of energy and momentum around you sort of in the literary world and, and a fantastic book of poetry before this. But then when you show up with this novel, which is structurally very different, um, and then you, the publishers say, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll do this. Let's do this. And they bring it out to the world. The fact that it has been received so astonishingly well, and in fact now is in the process of being made into a movie, I think it also, there's a bigger statement there in that the assumptions that we made about how we need to create these, you know, like this darkness and light and this very prototypical art, and that's the only thing that people want, that is not true. That's spot on. And I think it, it, it undercuts, you know, the intelligence of readers of all, all walks of life in the country and across the world, you know, to, to say that the, the justification that it's never been done before and therefore shouldn't be done is, is incredibly silly and fraught and infused by capitalism, right? There's this fear that we lose money and, and it, hurt, it hurts art. Um, and, you know, it wasn't without its, the publishing of this book without, it's not without its struggles. I was very lucky to have the chance to meet publishers and to talk to them and, and see which one I wanted to work with. And I ultimately went with, Ann Godoff, my editor, who's a legendary, brilliant genius. You know, she understood this book through and through. She's published Thomas Pynchon, Zadie Smith, Mary Oliver. So I just, it, it was just like meeting an old friend. And, you know, we were already talking about how this book would live in the world. Whereas in other meetings, you know, I've had publishers say, you have a book about five topics, pick one. <laughs> Right, you have three endings. Pick one. Uh, you know, one even said, "What? What would? What would this um, book feel like for a Midwestern reader?" And I say, "Well, what would it feel like for any reader? What is a Midwestern reader, by the way? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, it, 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 it's so condescending in a sense. And this is part of the problem of publishing being polarized in the, you know, in New York and and." And the West Coast, where it actually characterizes American populations towards cartoonish versions that have no semblance of the actual ground, the actual reality. And, and I think I'm still, despite all that, quite surprised that this book has done what it's done. I don't know why. My heroes were esoteric, hybrid, weird, barely read. Poets, you know, Basho, you know, uh, 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 Teresa Hakim Cha, Marguerite Dura, 
you know, strange writers, Barry Hanna, uh, you know, that, and so I don't know why. I, I didn't have bestsellers as my role model. Um, so I'm a little bit perplexed still, but I think it's proof that people are, they know that they live conflicted lives, that they know that their lives are not put in the, the wood chipper of plot. Um, and so for a book to kind of reflect the honesty in living in the mundane, eating meals together and having difficult conversations with loved ones, that's American life from the very beginning to right now and probably long after. Hmm. I know part of the, um, the through line as you're writing this book is that you're moving through the creation process, the creative process, the storytelling and publishing process, and also standing increasingly in, in your seat or taking your seat as a teacher. And a lot of what you were just sharing to me, it was the voice of a teacher. It was like, there is, it's an, an invocation and an, an evocation to think deeper and to think more broadly and more inclusively and expansively. And, and that role for you has been formalized. You know, you're now at UMass uh, teaching in the, the writing program there. When you say yes to that, when you say yes to, okay, so I, I am a writer and, and this is, this is what breathes me to no small extent. And I'm also saying yes to say, I'm going to play the role of a mentor, a teacher to people who are just stepping into this themselves. When you think about what that is really about to you and what you hold sacred as you step into that role, I'm curious what comes to your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see a major difference between the two. Um, mm. One is very, very private, of course. Writing is very private and teaching is very public. Um, and so I don't, the, the only difference is that you have to be willing to give your students everything. And that's not hold back any secret knowledge. And, and the willingness to open up the coffers and empty the safes, to have no safes, to say, I'm going to give you everything I know, and you take it and you do what you can. Essentially, that is my pedagogy. And what I know changes, what I know grows uh, based on how I live and what I understand. Um, and so it, it's, it's simple, but it's very hard work, you know, because you really have to, to teach them, guide them, but also root for them. And it's, a, it's an emotional process. And, and uh, you know, especially rooting for them in a, a day and age where being a writer is, is very challenging. You know, wh why do this thing? We're, we're taught that you should do, be do something more useful. Right. And of course, I, I, I tell them what I told you is that you're, you're talking about the, pub, the most useful advanced technology we have. You're, you're choosing this endeavor. Um, but I always feel like thinking about your work is actually the majority of the work. You know, it's kind of like the beauty of a podcast like this, where you get to kind of develop a soil. And what I mean by that is that the book is it's one flower that comes out of a soil, it's limited, it's finite. But when you have a conversation like we're having now, when you think about your work and your pedagogy and your philosophy, your ethics, you're nurturing the soil. So the soil then becomes inexhaustible. Any book can come out of that soil if we tend to it. You know, I live in New England and I'm lucky to know 
a few queer farmers, and they always tell me how important it is to reinvest in the soil, to re-nourish the soil, to bring the soil back. And so theory and ethics and philosophy is the soil in which all things come out of. And if I didn't have that, if I didn't have the ability to articulate the soil, right? I think ultimately that's what teaching is. It's explaining and articulating the soil so that it doesn't look just like a dark mass. It's cutting the stratification, lifting it up, and seeing it through and saying, this is where the sediment is. This is what this is. This is what this, these nutrients are. And this is where the roots go. The, the ability to do that is so important. And I think if I was any other writer, if I was a younger writer, you know, publishing a book of poems helped me grow and think and mature in a way. But I could see how a lot of writers could enter those meetings where a publisher says, pick one, or, you know, our Midwestern readers won't like this, and kind of cave to that and surrender to that because they don't have the soil. So in those meetings, I had to kind of do the TED Talk. I had to explain the value in my work and to convince some editors that what I'm doing is not arbitrary. This is not a lucky accident. This is intentional. This comes from deep, long investment in the soil. And what you're seeing is the blossoming that came from that. And so I could see also how a lot of writers can lose themselves in this process if they don't know where they're coming from, if they don't know what soil they come from, and they can't articulate that, they could be wiped out. Mm. Yeah, having a deep sense of that is, uh, gives such a sense of fortitude in a certain way. Or it makes you understand, I think, where your line in the sand is. You know, it's interesting because almost in, in a complimentary way, I know I've also heard you offer the phrase to privilege your sense of bewilderment and wonder. So it's almost like on the one hand, yes, like till the soil, know what that soil looks like, be deeply familiar with it. And at the same time, open yourself to the vast sense of, of the unknown and what you know may emerge before you. Yes. What else can I put into the soil? Right. You know, uh, yeah. th th this year I learned just to extend the metaphor that you could put coffee grounds in the soil yeah. and it, would, it did wonders for my house plants. I never knew that. And, and, and I, I reacted the same way I reacted to anything, you know, th that delights and wonders and acknowledge and informs us. I, I, I was like, oh my God, coffee in my, pa you know, <laughs> in, my, in my cactus. Um, and, and it was so delightful to, to think and, and feel and, and be open to that. I think, you know, never sit down at the desk or anywhere deciding to do, to write a love poem. I actually, one of my assignments to my students, I'm very sneaky, I try to be sneaky, and I say, all right, next week, write me a love poem. And I just, you know, right before I leave class, I just drop it. And next week comes around, and I, and I can see their faces, right? And I say, it wasn't easy, was it? <laughs> and you'd be surprised how many of them, you know, just couldn't do it. Because why would anyone work that way, right? To, 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 to put the mantle of a huge subject onto above your head and right towards that cripples creativity. In the same way that to write only as an Asian American or a queer person, these labels also stunt and narrow the possibilities 
of bewilderment and wonder. I don't sit down writing as whatever label the world offers me, because often the world only offers you one or two. But I know I have more. I'm a dog lover, a fan of mixed martial arts, you know, a vegan at best. You know, and, and so all these things, I have all this wealth of ontological truths. Why would I write only under one mantle? Uh, and especially what's expected of me. You lose yourself. And, and so I always remind them to kind of, you know, don't give yourself a clear objective. Give yourself a hopeful horizon. Move towards something, not just aimless, but move towards something, knowing that whatever you make towards that movement will still be valuable, even if you don't get there. There is no true destination. Mm. Yeah, that resonates deeply. I've, there's an interesting corollary in the world of business, in, oddly enough, um, and entrepreneurship in that I often feel in somebody who's been through the process of founding a, a number of times over that um, in the early days, and, and it's very much like any creative endeavor, including starting to write, I, I've come to believe that movement is far more important than direction, that the direction will, you know, sometimes you, you, you do sit down and you're compelled by a very precise thing, but, but I don't necessarily think that's necessary. And like, like you said, in certain situations, I think it's counterproductive where it's more important to simply start moving in almost any direction, to, to move from being static to being in motion. And it's the process of movement that reveals the direction or the eventual outcome. And sometimes if you try and lock that down too quickly, you may get there with less stumbling, but the there that you land may not be anywhere close to representative of the there you could have landed. Absolutely. I think, for example, roads only take you to known places. A road takes you to some where someone already been. The road never takes you to a new place, right? And I think it's important to remember, regardless of what you're doing, writing a book or starting a business, that underneath the grid that we are so familiar with, the GPS has mastered, underneath that grid is a field. And it was always there. And that the grid mapped over it is still arbitrary. It's, it's, not, it's not a true route, but something that's just been mapped over. But underneath that is a field, and you can truly go, and you should wander in that field. Um, and that to be lost in it is not to be wrong. Mm, love that. feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So yeah. sitting here in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Oh, a life full of examination that you can harness what you examine and enact it in satisfying and fulfilling ways with the people you love. It's a very important. I think the, the question I often ask is how do I make something? How do I make a book? How do I make a poem? And I answer by looking better at the world. But I'm also interested in examining a life thoroughly and looking at a world carefully towards no final object. 
that's just as important to you because to make a book is very rare. Some folks don't have the privilege. Either they don't have time, they don't have the capacity, they're not healthy enough. You know, so I'm more interested. I think the more challenging, the more Herculean and righteous endeavor, admirable one, is to be so curious and open and wonderstruck at the world and do nothing with it other than allow yourself to grow and to communicate with those you love better. No final product, no book, no commodified thing, but just to simply expand as a person. I think that is even more noble and perhaps what most people would end up doing, you know, rather than writing a book or making something. Mm, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you'll also love the conversation that we had with Axel Mansour about the experience of being a third culture kid and how he found an outlet in music. You'll find a link to Axel's episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you are on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you'll never miss an episode and then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time. Mm-hmm.